This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. This is New Books and National Security, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Beth Windish. I'm pleased to introduce Latricia Hamilton, who's joining New Books and National Security as a host. Latricia is a lawyer, writer, and global affairs professional. Her work has been published by a number of organizations, including the Council on Foreign Relations, Diplomatic Courier, and Diversity and National Security Network. Thanks for joining the team, Latricia. Thank you for the warm introduction. I'm glad to be here. We are both joined today by Phil Nash, the author of the new book, Breaking Protocol, America's First Female Ambassadors, 1933 to 1964. Phil Nash is an associate professor of history at Penn State Shenango. He's also a frequent guest on the Professor Buzzkill podcast. Phil, welcome to the show. It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Can you tell us a little bit more about you and how you became interested in writing about America's first female ambassadors? Sure. Uh, I'm a career professional historian. I've taught at Penn State for about 20 years. Uh, My original training was in fitting for this podcast, national security and sort of Cold War and um, those sorts of those sorts of issues. My first book was on the Cuban Missile Crisis many, many years ago. And so after that, I wanted to do something new. And in my field, the subfield of history, U.S. foreign relations, in the 1990s, there was lots of talk about opening up the field to new approaches to doing new sort of sub subfields and in particular looking uh, more closely at questions of women and gender. And in my view, there were a lot of there were many more people talking about doing that than actually doing that. And so I stumbled upon this woman named Frances Willis, who was the first woman, she gets a chapter in the book, she was the first woman to work her way up through the career foreign service. And I started looking into her and doing some research on her. And before I knew it, it had morphed into this book that tries to tell the story of the first six US female ambassadors. And really few, if any, people had written anything on the subject. So it seemed to me a real gap in the literature. And... uh, and I just spent many, many years doing the research and doing the writing on it. So Phil, what does breaking protocol mean and why was it important for you to tell the stories of the so-called big six? It's a great question. Protocol, that word has many meanings in the world of diplomacy. Protocol means the sort of uh, traditions and practices that have um, grown up in that business. And it's a way they conduct business and to a lot of outsiders, it seems really silly. And it's things like, you know, what what order you sit in at a big banquet table during an official dinner. Um, how do you how do you present your credentials to the host government? A lot of it, you know, to outsiders seems really sort of weird and arcane and silly. It's actually really important in the dip- diplomacy world. And I uh, and, and and breaking protocol typically in the diplomacy world is a bad thing. Right. In other words, it's, you're stepping out of line. You're not adhering to the rules. Who do you think you are? You're an upstart or you're you know, sort of scandalous, your behavior, that sort of thing. But so I wanted to um, give the idea that women invading this man's world was in a way breaking protocol. But obviously, in my view, it was break, breaking protocol in a good way. And these first women, I, one of the reasons I was interested in them is because these women, they are taking these sort of high-ranking posts in the world of uh, foreign relations when there were very, very few women who did that. 
And so they're, they're sort of pioneers in a way. And so that's why I, I thought that that breaking protocol was, was sort of a good, a good way of uh, labeling that. Great. In the prologue, you immediately pose the question to your readers, who should represent the United States overseas? Absent gender, can you describe the qualities and characteristics that someone serving as a diplomat or ambassador should possess? That's a fantastic question. And that has also changed over the years, uh, as you might imagine. But they typically want someone who's highly educated, articulate, and can write well. They want someone who is open-minded. They want someone who can uh, learn about and appreciate, in, appreciate and operate in a variety of cultures. Ideally, they'd like someone who has some facility with foreign languages. Uh, you'd certainly have to be able to roll with the punches. It's, it's, uh, and it's just some of the, it's one of the issues I talk about at the end of the book. It is challenging to raise a family as a professional diplomat because you're often moving around the world. It's a very hectic life. But yeah, I mean, in a way, it's, it almost sounds like you need somebody who can do everything and who's good at everything. And obviously, that's not terribly useful. But, uh, you know, I, I actually um, tried to get in the Foreign Service early in my career and was offered a position and decided to go to grad school instead. R roads not taken. But yeah, the, you have to be able to think on your feet. You have to be able to be, you have to be analytical. You have to be able to study problems. You have to be dispassionate. Uh, there's something I touch on in the book as well, is that you don't want to uh, um, become guilty of what's called localitis, where, the, in other words, you become so attached to your host country that you forget almost what your job is, that you're supposed to represent the United States. And there, there, there have been many, many cases, and sometimes with these women, sometimes with uh, a lot of men, that they become so immersed in local problems, and they spend so much time talking with host country officials that they end up representing the host country back to the United States. In other words, and advocating for the host country rather than advocating for the United States, which is what you're supposed to do. So you obviously you have to have you have to have a, a sense of, of proportion. You have to be um, have an even temper. Uh, one of the reasons they excluded women is you're not supposed you're supposed to be cold and analytical and not emotional. And of course, back in the day, right, that was that was a wrap on women or they're too emotional. They can't think straight. You can't rely on them to dispassionately examine a particular problem and report back honestly. And so that will just keep them out. And of course, obviously, don't need to tell you that that's ridiculous and for example that all sorts of men are <laughs> perfectly capable of being overly emotional and vice versa these women all did rather well at their jobs but yeah i mean it's 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 a very difficult career in some ways and you have to be you have to be very well-rounded and you have to have a lot of breadth and for example, you have to be comfortable in all lots of different subjects, economics, politics, history, culture, et cetera. If you're very narrowly focused, we're sort of all about depth rather than breadth, I think you might run into some trouble in that, in that field. I don't know if I've come anywhere close to answering your question. Oh, yes, you did. You described the history of the American diplomatic corps. And in that you discuss some of the characteristics and pastimes. And I think of the example you give of um, hunting and they were seen as important skills. How did that show that class was a factor in who represented America abroad? Right, right. And that's a great question. That also gets back to what I, I should have said earlier about whole, you know, what, what is representative is that I set the stage by talking about the early 20th century when the American diplomatic corps was, uh, as the old saw had it, it was, was pale male in Yale. These are all white men. They tend to come from elite backgrounds, um, boarding schools, Ivy League schools. They tend to be upper class. Uh, very early on, before the professionalization of the Foreign Service in the 1920s, these are people from the upper class of society. It didn't pay very well, so basically you had to be wealthy already to go into this field. And you spend all of your time once you're sent out to a foreign post sort of schmoozing with and spending time with people in your class and you share their interests, you share their tastes. And so, you know, you have, you have a big budget, you have a really nice wardrobe, you have a really nice um, 
apartment or house, you have servants, you engage in these upper class leisure activities such as golf, tennis, polo, right? A lot of these people would, you know, they would, they would own a horse and they would go out and play polo. You know, these are all things that, that poor and middle class people can't do. And a lot of them were extremely keen on hunting, not just them. Hunting, hunting actually uh, undergoes sort of a renaissance or sort of makes a big comeback in the early 20th century among a lot of middle and upper class American men in general. And partly because and we've seen this before in history and some, in some ways we see it even now, there's this, um, what you might call gender, <clears throat> excuse me, gender anxiety where the men feel like they're not manly anymore because they don't go out and kill their food. They, they spend all day behind a desk. They move paper around and people like Teddy Roosevelt were terrified that men were, men were, were becoming weak and soft. And so they try to think of all these ways to sort of recover their manhood. And sometimes, you know, if you're an extreme case like Teddy Roosevelt, that means quitting your very important government job to go and try and get killed in Cuba because he really did want to die in combat. He was a very extreme case. But in a lot of other cases, what it means is you become an enthusiastic hunter. That's part of the story. The other part of the story is things like hunting were a very important part of the diplomat's world outside of the office. And even though it's unofficial and it doesn't produce a memo, the social bonds you build with host government officials, other diplomats, your colleagues in the embassy, those social ties are absolutely crucial to doing your job right. And so if you can go on a hunting expedition and bag a big, even dangerous animal, that's a way of proving yourself. And as I say in the book, it's sort of a twofer. You, you prove your manhood but also you prove that you are good at this very important social activity. And so at, at sort of in the background, you will be thought more highly of, and that, that, that will allow you to be more effective at your job in the office. That really connects to my next question, because you, you investigate why women were excluded from diplomatic service, which given the time period pre-women suffrage, it doesn't seem that unusual, but you also make this connection to homophobia, and that there's this larger issue of diplomacy being seen as feminized in contrast to this masculine military action as you were as you were just discussing how has gender influenced the perception of foreign affairs and also who takes on different roles in these institutions right that's a great question um to put it very simply compared to even other parts of the US government in the early 20th century the State Department and the Foreign Service were considered to be, to put it very bluntly, vaguely European. In other words, these are people who, in fact, this is often something they were accused of, but they're not really American. You know, they are from these precious upper-class backgrounds. Uh, a lot of them seem to have uh, British accents. A lot of them, they, they get their suits from Savile Row in London. And that sometimes they were called pink tea types, or they were called cookie pushers. And they were considered, you know, and, and it's, it's all of a piece. One of the reasons why they embrace hunting is they're trying to fight against this stereotype that they are somehow effeminate and that they're not really men and that they're just, there's, you know, and all the sort of uh, the typical um, insult terms like Nancy or sissy. These are words that are often thrown at diplomats in particular. And so they have to fight very, very hard to sort of overcome these stereotypes. And, this becomes an issue even relatively late. For example, in the early Cold War, there was not only a Red Scare in Washington, D.C., there's also what's been called the Lavender Scare, which is say there was persecution of gay men in particular. Uh, hundreds of men were either fired or forced to resign their government jobs, a lot of them in the State Department in the late 40s and early 50s, because all, all it would take is a rumor Right, for example, if you weren't married or, or weren't seen with women, um, or if the word was you were a quote-unquote confirmed bachelor, that could get people talking, and that uh, that that sort of innuendo was enough to destroy your career. You could be banned from government service. And what I argue in my first chapter, where I set the stage with this sort of hyper male world of diplomacy, is that this would make the diplomatic world even less likely to admit 
women than some other fields. And if you think about it, you know, in the early 20th century, you had female MDs, you had female lawyers, you had some of the professions where there were some women, not a lot. It was hard. They were treated like garbage. They had a lot of uh, sort of uh, obstacles to overcome, but it was possible. You had zero American female diplomats until 1922. And you had zero American female ambassadors or chiefs of mission, as they were called, until 1933. So, and, and my, my argument is that was not an accident. And it's partly because there's this whole sort of baggage that male diplomats have that they're struggling against. And they're struggling against this very negative stereotype. And you don't struggle against that stereotype by being associated with women. And so I, I argue that, you know, there are other reasons, too, other reasons that may even be more important. For example, let's believe that women are emotional or even, believe it or not, uh, the idea that women couldn't keep a secret. Those sorts of things were also part of this um, discrimination against women and resistance to admit women uh, to, the, to the Foreign Service. But, uh, but the, the homophobia in the society, the fear of that sort of stereotype was something that male diplomats struggled against mightily for decades. And Phil, you briefly touched on my next question. In the book, you stated that former U.S. Secretary of State Madeleine Albright jokingly said in 1996 that the only way a woman could truly make her foreign policy views felt was by marrying a diplomat and then pouring tea on an offending ambassador's lap. Why do you think women were excluded from the Foreign Service to such a gross degree? Yeah, uh, you're right. I, I, I talked a little bit. I'm trying to remember. You, you, you've read the book. Maybe you could help me out if I miss some. There was a, a litany of reasons. One is that women were thought to be too emotional. Another is they didn't think they could keep uh, secrets. Another is that a fear that women were not up to the physical demands of the job. And by that, I mean, you know, you're sent uh, to places all around the world, sometimes to uh, very poorly developed countries. You're sent to countries with very different cultures. Uh, your job may, for example, being in the consular corps uh, at the low level, you might have to deal with Americans who get into trouble, like Americans who break the law or Americans who are drunk and abusive. Um, sometimes you, there are physical risks. You know, more than a few diplomats have been actually killed on the job or been taken a hostage on the job. I mean, that can happen. And so then it becomes, once again, this is, an, uh, this is a patriarchal age in which men are supposed to protect women from danger and so you're not you're not considered a man if you would put a woman in harm's way like that so just keep them out of it uh there's there's also the issue of like i said this is a very male society outside the office which includes exclusive men's clubs and these are they're for the upper class and by definition they did not admit women and so the Americans would argue, well, you know, we'd love to admit women, but if we did, they still wouldn't be able to form the, the necessary social bonds by going into an all men's club. And, and when, what I argue is that, you know, in a way, this is sort of hypocritical because the Americans are acting like they're not against women. In other words, we'd love to admit them, but it's these backward foreigners who hate women. And well, we got to kind of keep them happy which I would argue that's a lie. They, they themselves didn't want women. They were just looking for excuses. That's a way to sort of hang it on a foreign society. I mean, it, it's partly true, as, as, you, as you see in the book, when we, for example, name Claire Booth Luce ambassador to Italy, there are clearly a lot of Italians, certainly in the foreign office, who do not take this very well. They think this is an insult. Like, if you, if you, taught, if you thought we were a serious country, you wouldn't send us a woman. And so this is one of the ways that sexism and patriarchy sort of reinforce themselves and why, why they sort of stay frozen in place. Are there other reasons women were kept out? Mm, there, I don't know if I list it formally, but there is the, and I think you, you sort of touched on it, there is the spousal issue. You know, this is, a, this is an age where if you're a woman and you're married, well, obviously you follow the man. His career comes first. So if you're an ambassador and your husband has to move, well, obviously that's going to prevent you from doing your job. And so it's not, it's no coincidence that some of the women in, in diplomacy generally, and also some of the first chiefs of mission were single 
or they were widows. Or like in the case of Eugenie Anderson, she was married, but her husband was an artist and he was free to go with her. So that was a real impediment. And, you know, there's this, the first woman I talk about is Ruth Brian Owen, who essentially has to resign partly because she marries a foreigner, which is more of the hypocrisy because U.S. male diplomats married foreign, women foreign nationals all the time. That was routine. And here's an American woman who's an ambassador. She marries a foreigner and she's expected to quit. So there are some real um, unfair sort of sexist aspects to this whole world, which also work to sort of keep women out of the profession. Yeah, and lots of double standards too. Oh, absolutely, yes. So next one. Yeah, there was a, excuse me, if I can just insert, uh, there was a marriage ban. In other words, if you were a female, forget about uh, ambassadors, if you were a female professional diplomat, if you got married, you were basically fired, not formally, but informally. You were expected to resign. And that was in place until 1971. Wow, that's pretty right. Not 1871. Yeah, I mean, that, I mean that's the kind of thing that, you know, and they just imagine the implications of that, right? It was sort of like in the 19th century and, and also 20th century with school teachers. You're supposed to be single as a female school teacher. You're supposed to be married to your kids, basically, that you teach. And if you get married, you're fired because, well, he's the breadwinner. It's taken a long, long time to do away with some of those some of those barriers. Yeah. So next we'll talk about the six women profiled. Ruth Brian Owen is the first woman from the United States to serve as chief of mission. Can you tell us about her and how she came to break that barrier? Sure. She is a real interesting character, uh, like all of them. Uh, she was the oldest daughter of William Jennings Bryan, and the students of American history out there will recognize that name. He was uh, the, the great commoner, as he was called. He was a leading Democratic politician, late 19th, early 20th century, three-time nominee for president, secretary of state at one point, a uh, lawyer in the monkey trial in the 1920s. He did a lot of things. Anyway, she was uh, his oldest daughter. She um, was the first female congresswoman from the South. She represented a district in the U.S. Congress from Florida. And long story short, in 1932, she lost her primary over the issue of prohibition, which was a huge issue at that time. And she worked very hard for Franklin D. Roosevelt's election. And as people, um, it's just an issue today, certainly we're one of the few countries that uses ambassadorships in part to pay political debts. We appoint, we, in other words, we don't only have professional diplomats as ambassadors, we also have political appointees, often people with no uh, experience whatsoever. And so she was, was, she was a lame duck, right? She was on her way out of her congressional seat, and she was named minister to Denmark by Franklin Roosevelt as a, as a political appointee. Five of these six women are political appointees. In other words, they don't necessarily have any diplomatic experience. Most of them have political experience of some kind, which helps them, gives them the contacts, et cetera. But this was not at all because of the State Department. The State Department would have been happy to keep women out indefinitely. This was Franklin Roosevelt giving out political gifts, usually to men. In this case, he gives it to a woman. She sent to Denmark. By the way, she was considered to be um, a possibility for Secretary of Labor, which would have made her and not Frances Perkins, the first female cabinet officer, she didn't get that, so they gave her minister to Denmark instead. So she's the first. We were not the first person, the first country to do this. We were certainly one of the first. There had already been a couple of women I talk about in the book who had been appointed by other countries. But you'll also notice that she's sent to Denmark, which is a small European country not considered very important in Washington, D.C. You notice they didn't run off the bat center to a place like London or Paris or Tokyo or Moscow. That, by the way, that is still a problem today in 2020. Women are underrepresented in the, the prestige posts. Partly that's a money issue, but it's also partly a sexism issue. Uh, but so, yeah, so she's sent to Denmark. She serves there for three years. As I said before, she was forced to resign partly because she married a Dane. Uh, she was probably going to quit soon anyway. She wanted to come back and take part in politics again. She wanted to campaign for Roosevelt's reelection in 1936. So she stepped down. But she did a good enough job to make it so that this experiment could continue. I think that's a, I think that's a, a fair way of, of summing it up. Next, you discuss Florence Jaffrey Harriman and her post in Norway. 
you highlight, as you've talked about a little bit previously, that she was excluded from men's clubs, which made her job particularly difficult. Can you tell us a little bit more about her and how she tried to overcome that? Sure. Yeah, she's interesting in, in part because she had had a rather substantial political career well before this. She's born in 1870. She doesn't become minister to Norway until she's 66. In other words, she's technically past the standard retirement age. But she had she had campaigned. She was she was by the way from the upper class. She was she had a she was a debutante at eighteen. She married a, a prominent New York stockbroker. She was widowed at age what forty four. That that freed her to do this later on. But she was very active in politics. She served in the Wilson administration in various capacities. She was very active in the Democratic Party. Very very well connected. She was so well-connected, she was even well-connected to some professional diplomats, which you could not say about Ruth Brian Owen. And she's sent to Norway in 1937, and I note the irony that she's sent to Norway at FDR's and Franklin Roosevelt's insistence, partly because this was a, a neutral, peaceful country that was out of the way of any possible European conflict that seemed to be brewing already. So in other words, we send her to a safe place. I infer that that, that may very well be because she was a woman, Roosevelt is still not entirely comfortable with sending women to places that might be dangerous. So he sent her to Norway, which was traditional neutral country, neutral world, World War I. She won't get into any trouble. That was true until war broke out. I say he didn't, he didn't see <laughs> that one coming, huh? <laughs> no, not really. No, and as I point out in the book, uh, the head of the women's division of the Democratic Party, or the, sorry, the Democratic National um, Committee, uh, Molly Dusen basically had her I told you so moment because after Florence Herrmann performed so well literally under fire in, in World War II when Norway is in, invaded in April 1940 Molly Dusen goes to the FDR and says so like basically like like what up like look how well she has done and you wanted to put her out of harm's way and now she's in harm's way and she's like doing better than most most male diplomats would do so she felt vindicated uh, in in pushing for for women and in case I forget to say it, keep in mind that people like Roosevelt is not uh, a hardcore feminist. In case there's any doubts about that, like most male politicians, he's doesn't doesn't take women seriously, doesn't consider them to be equals. He does these sorts of things for political reasons and because he's lobbied. People like Molly Dusen, people like his wife Eleanor Roosevelt, they push him to name women to government posts in diplomacy and elsewhere. In other words, this is not just about foreign relations. And so, to the extent that women are making any progress in government in this period it's because well women can vote after 1920 and if you're a good politician you want to keep an eye on that you want to make sure that the women around you who are lobbying you that they that you give them something that you give them some positions to women so you can say oh look at all the women i've appointed and you know they typically don't give them very important positions they are tokens throughout the period of the book there are only a handful of female ambassadors, only a, never more than one female cabinet secretary until what? Goodness, until Barack Obama, I think, or maybe Bill Clinton. It's been a, there's a long, long time coming for women to get serious representation in government. So this is only done because of because of political pressure. And, and I argue that that's one of the reasons, in, in this one sense, it's actually a good thing that we have these political appointments. Foreigners look at us like we're crazy. Like, why would you give some complete amateur one of these important positions? And it, in this case, it worked out. We admitted women to ambassadorships far earlier than we would have otherwise. We just left to the State Department and, and only uh, rely on women who come up through the ranks of the Foreign Service. It would have been decades, decades later that this that these barriers were broken. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. In the story of Pearl Mesta, you talk about how the Foreign Service officers tried to undermine her authority. Was this a common thing? 
Great question. It, hers, in the book, among the six women I study, hers is the worst case of her own underlings working to undermine her. There are other cases. Women at lower levels who weren't ambassadors, they constantly had to watch their backs. You know, and it, it, it's kind of hard to measure because it's typically, the evidence isn't always so great. In other words, you're not going to look at some male diplomat's diary and he's not going to write June 14th. Well, I really stuck it to that woman today. Now she's out of her job. Go men, right? I mean, that's not going to be in the evidence. Sometimes you have to sort of look for indirect evidence, but it's quite clear that a lot of men did not appreciate women working next to them. A lot of men didn't want to uh, serve under a woman. As I point out, sometimes it's tough to tease out the motivations. For example, a lot of male diplomats didn't like political appointees of either sex, right? And so in other words, they might have hated someone like Pearl Mesta even if she were a man. I suspect it's made worse by the fact that she's a woman, made worse by the fact that she was a socialite, right? She was uh, Washington, D.C.'s number one party hostess. She was a very influential woman, but those are reasons, uh, you know, her background, she was very rich, didn't seem to have worked very hard, even though she did. So the professional diplomats, um, a couple of them in particular, they're also in Serbia and Luxembourg, which is a tiny country in Europe. A lot of these folks probably would rather work in Paris or London. And now you're working under this woman, a political appointee, socialite. And the first day she shows up, she meets with her staff, and they basically say to her, basically, you sit back, we'll do the job. Which, if you're Pearl Mesta and you actually take yourself seriously and want to do a job, that's insulting. So, I mean, they get up on the wrong foot and they're constantly disapproving of what she wants to do, partly because of this, or partly because of the of, of small p protocol, right? In other words, her, one of her first official visits is she goes down into a coal mine. Well, if you're an upper class, respectable diplomat, you don't do that. Ambassadors don't go down into coal mines. That's something a politician does. That's not something the diplomat does. And so you can just imagine her staff turning up their nose and thinking, gee, we're like, you know, looking at, the, looking at the calendar, like how long do I have to work under her? And, you know, she actually wrote a memo. It's one of my a great piece of evidence. She wrote a memo to her boss, Harry Truman, the president, only because he asked her to, basically laying out all these conflicts she had with the Foreign Service and how this one guy, when he was reassigned, he like celebrated by charging into her office and getting into the screaming match with her and treating her with great disrespect. And I have to assume once again, this partly because she's a woman and, you know, she basically says, I'm being wasted here in Luxembourg. Like I'm, I'm out, I'm out the door, like see ya. And pretty amazing. A kind of thing that typically male diplomats don't have to put up with. So she easily of the six, she easily had the worst relationship with the professional diplomats. Um, they, there's another issue too, which you see in, in her case and in others, which is when you're a political appointee, you typically have much better access to the White House. You might even be a personal friend of the president. The best professional diplomat has no such access. They can't just get on the phone and call up their friend, Harry Truman. And so when she, and she does this all the time, by the way, when she, you plays that card, you know, and I have a minutes from one meeting where she's basically like, so what if I were like involved the White House in this? If I'm a professional diplomat, I want to jump across the table and strangle her because she's basically, she's throwing her weight around. I mean, talk about breaking protocol. You, you don't, you don't, you, you don't use the tricks of a politician in the diplomatic world. You just don't do that. And she didn't hesitate. You know, she, she was, she was a product of Washington DC social scene. She does this all the time. It's about schmoozing. It's about contacts. It's about, Calling, uh, calling in um, chits and doing favors for people. I mean, it's much more like, I mean, it's going to sound nasty, it's much more like the mob than it is like the diplomatic world. And so those, it's like when worlds collide. And she was, I think, uh, the most obvious victim of that. There were others too. Like it happened to Ruth Brian Owen, where I have, I have the memos where the men are basically, um, they're talking about her behind her back and they're, they're trying to undermine her and, and, and telling stories and stuff. Um, and that's on paper. Who knows what they were doing verbally, but yeah, so this was another obstacle these women had to overcome is the suspicion, the lack of cooperation, or even things that might not seem that uh, lack of enthusiasm, right? 
you're if, if your staff drags their feet because they've got low morale because they're working for a woman, that's ultimately going to reflect on you and what kind of an embassy you run. Yeah. So these are these are all things that you don't think about. It's like, oh, she'll be fine. Right? It's a small country. She's got a professional staff. It's, it's, it's all good. Not necessarily. And unfortunately today, a lot of women are still dealing with those same issues. Uh, yeah, I, I, I wish we could say we're out of the woods, <laughs> not even close. Uh, let's hope things change soon. So, yeah, absolutely. So let's talk about um, Eugenie M. Anderson. She served in two countries and challenged protocol regarding how she was seated and her treatment as an ambassador. Can you tell us more about her? Sure. Yeah, she was uh, another politician. She was very, even though she didn't, was never elected to political office, she was a very major player in, it's a, technically in Minnesota, it's not the Democratic Party, it's the Democratic Farm, Farmer Labor Party. They had a merger, it's kind of weird. Anyway, she was in the late 40s, she was a major player in Minnesota politics. She was super tight with Hubert Humphrey who was one of the most prominent politicians ever produced by the state of Minnesota. And of course, he also lobbied for her to get a job when he was elected to the Senate in 1948. So Truman appoints two women. One is Pearl Mesta. We just talked about her. The other is Eugenie Anderson. Uh, I'm pretty comfortable saying that she's the best of the six, with possible exception of Frances Willis. She's the most effective, uh, very much a hands-on boss. Uh, did a great job. She stands out partly because she learned Danish very, very quickly and gave, uh, I start out the chapter talking about this 4th of July speech she gave in front of a crowd of 30,000 people in Danish, a language she had only been familiar with for six months. And she essentially rocked the house. She, she upstaged the king. She made a huge splash. She became a household name because partly because Part of the traditional diplomatic world is you, like I said, you hang out in this very small, tight elite circle where no matter what country you're in, your country you are in, a lot of these people already speak English. And there are all sorts of professional diplomats, including some of her own staff, who basically say, like, why are you bothering learning Danish? Like, everyone who, one, her, her number two in the embassy, or, sorry, in the embassy basically says, everyone who's anybody knows how to speak English already, which shows you a lot about that attitude. Because at that time, the actual head of the government, the prime minister in Denmark, did not speak English. So what does that tell you about the attitude of a professional diplomat, right? In other words, that we hang out with, we hand, hang out with our with our counterparts in the diplomatic world. They all speak English. We're good, and like they look at you funny. Like why would you bother learning Danish? It made her much more effective. It made her a household name. It made her super popular. She could represent the, the United States much more effectively she could learn much more about her host country by learning the language she later served under kennedy in the early 60s in bulgaria which made her the first woman to serve the u.s uh, behind the iron curtain much harder job this is during the cold war bulgaria was a horrible soviet-style communist dictatorship where you're under constant surveillance your uh the ministry she worked in was was uh wiretapped and bugged, right? You couldn't even have free conversations with each other. That was really, really hard on her. And there, there the problem was not her subordinates, really. It was actually the Bulgarian government, which is out to harass her and prevent her from doing her job, and from preventing her from doing what she called people's diplomacy. In other words, where you reach out to everyday people, you sort of represent the United States to the whole population. That's one of the major themes of the book. Uh, that was hard to do in that sort of a country. I argue she still did a pretty good job, nevertheless. But yeah, so she, yeah, she's a political appointee. So in other words, um, and her, like I said, her husband was an artist. So she was free to serve two presidents. Uh, in fact, I think she was the only one who did serve two presidents, first Truman, then Kennedy. So her, her diplomatic career is a little, a little longer. But uh, she did uh, an amazing job. Uh, Secretary of State Dean Acheson, who appointed hundreds of diplomats, he called her one of the two best appointments he made. And this by once again, just for the record, Dean Atchison, not a feminist. <laughs> not even close. He's a, he's a super uh, the traditional elite male who was not big on appointing women, but he was blown away by how effective she was. And I, and I argue that that's important because that's in the aggregate sort of over time, big picture, that's how things change. 
is that you give women a chance, they perform, and it starts to change minds. And so someone like George Cannon, who was a thoroughgoing sexist, this is a man, a career diplomat, very famous, an amazing talent, who in the late 1930s said that women should have the right to vote taken away from them. So this guy was, at least at that point, a true knuckle-dragger when it came to gender equality. He actually took the time out in 1963 to write the Secretary of State, and you're not supposed to do this. You're not When you're a diplomat, you're not supposed to write memos to your boss commenting on the performance of your colleagues. There's a, <laughs> you're just, that's just not, that, that's breaking protocol. That's not acceptable. You're the, 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 a person's superiors are supposed to judge you, not your peers. He didn't care. He wrote a memo to Dean Rush, Secretary of State. Look at what an awesome job Eugenie Anderson is doing next door in Bulgaria. She's, she's, she's got one of the toughest jobs and she's just nailing it. And so when someone who's super sexist says that to me, that's, that's how change happens. Right. Men don't wake up one day saying, wow, we're horrible sexists. We need to treat women equally. That's not how that happens. It would be nice. But that's not how that happens. It happens by you chip away at it bit by bit. These, the, the sort of cumulative total of these experiences where men start to discover, wow, you know what? This woman here, we didn't want to give her a chance. We did. She actually outperformed a lot of the men. And then maybe there's a little voice in the back of his mind that says, yeah, let's, let's give another woman a chance. And it's not that the women are unqualified. They just need an opportunity. Thank and when you, you gave her an opportunity, right. oh. she rose to the occasion. Oh, yeah. I mean, I talk briefly in the book about some of the other uh, political appointees who are men who are absolute disasters and who, who should have been five minutes behind the, behind the desk running an embassy. And yet they got jobs, right? I mean, that's the thing. Whenever we talk about controversial issues like affirmative action, right? We always talk about, oh, so-and-so, she didn't deserve the job. What about all the hopelessly incompetent white men who got the job because they were white men? I mean, that, 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 the idea that, oh, we haven't been discriminating. No, you have only considered white men for the job. And you've, you've gone down to the bottom of the barrel to pay off some of these political uh, debts, and and you you've appointed a white male who is an embarrassment to the United States. So, and yet you're going to freeze out slightly more than half the population from your candidate pool. Like, why would you do that? Anyway, don't want to don't want to go on a rant here, but <laughs> <laughs> it's unfortunately, as you said, it's still an issue. Next up in the book, and you touched on her briefly, you talk about Claire Booth, uh, excuse me, Claire Booth Luce, who before serving in Italy was a member of Congress and a well-known player in Republican politics. What's her legacy? Yeah, her legacy, um, her legacy in part, and it's, it's one of the reasons I'll talk later about, oh, I'm going to do a whole book on her. Uh, she, apart from perhaps Eleanor Roosevelt, I would argue that Claire Bufus was the most accomplished woman in the United States in the 20th century. She did a little bit of everything. She was a journalist. Uh, she was a war correspondent. She was a very successful playwright, as you mentioned. She was a two-term congresswoman from Connecticut. She was part of a very, very powerful and influential couple. Her husband was um, Henry Luce, who was the publisher of Time and Life and Fortune and Sports Illustrated. He was, I mean, back when print journalism was much more important than it is now, he was one of the most influential people in, in American society and certainly in Republican politics. And so Eisenhower, the Republican, is elected in 1952. The Luces uh, both supported him a lot, with a lot of money in addition. So she was, excuse me, she was named ambassador to Italy. She was the first woman, it was a big watershed, 1953. She was the first woman uh, sent to a major ally. And like I said earlier, the Italians, some of them anyway, obviously not enough to prevent it, but some Italians, well, one Italian foreign officer, uh, foreign, foreign office official said basically when he found out, what do you think we are, Luxembourg? Like, 
you know, that was, that was, you can feel free to send women to these penny ante countries, but we're a player. You know, we're, we're a major NATO ally on the front lines of the Cold War, and you're going to send us a woman? What's up with that? She also changed a lot of minds. And remember, uh, I don't want to talk about national character and stuff like that, but Italy in the 1950s, very patriarchal, very macho society, much more so than the United States. Uh, male insecurity, a much bigger problem in the society. And so, I mean, in a way, you got to give Eisenhower credit. I mean, you could argue on the one hand that maybe he didn't take Italy that seriously, but he was willing to send Claire Recluse to Italy. By all accounts, did a very good job, uh, played a huge role in solving the dispute over Trieste between Italy and Yugoslavia. Uh, she was appointed ambassador Brazil in 1959 and was technically ambassador for, to Brazil for three days. She immediately stepped down. She turned out she didn't want the job, but she was obviously good enough to get a second appointment. She went on later to be a pundit, sort of uh, peripherally involved in, in politics and, and foreign policy. She didn't die until what, 1987. Um, her legacy, uh, partly I'm working through it for, for writing my next book, but at a time when women generally weren't allowed to have a single career, she had multiple careers and did them all pretty well. So she is an amazing person in a lot of ways. She's in a way, she was able to overcome the limitations of gender, partly because she was so famous, wealthy, well-connected, but also because she was just obviously very competent. She was, a, she was a, a fantastic public speaker, but she was also a celebrity. And she's not the only one of these women who succeed partly because of celebrity. I know that doesn't sound like, uh, you know, the, <laughs> it doesn't sound like great praise, but these women become more acceptable because they're so well-known and so well-liked. In Italy, hundreds of Italian parents name their kid Clara, and uh, Italian university students, they vote Claire Boutelous, the women, the woman they most admire, which tells you something, right? These are women who, they're going to college, but Let's face it, in Italy in the 50s, a lot of them are going to end up as traditional housewives. They're not going to, they're not going to be able to enjoy a career. And yeah, so who do they admire? They admire a woman who gets to be powerful, who gets to have influence, who gets to have her several careers, as I said. So she's a much admired figure. And uh, I argue that celebrity, which once again, that's breaking protocol. You're not supposed to seek the limelight as a diplomat. You're supposed to work secretly behind the scenes. You're supposed to keep a low profile. It's considered gauche. It's considered unseemly if you seek the limelight. A lot of these professional diplomats, they complain about the women being publicity hounds, like always getting their picture taken. And I would argue what, that doesn't make those women bad. It actually makes them ahead of their time. They understand that the public face of the United States in country X is the ambassador. And going out, meeting people, getting your picture taken, getting people to know your name, that makes you better, not worse. And Claire Bucluse was, was, was a great example of that. The last woman you uh, highlight in the book is Frances Willis. And what's interesting and kind of related to an earlier comment you met, you made, she was a bit different from the other women because she came up through the Foreign Service and was the only one out of the big six who wasn't a political in, in her background. Can you tell us a little bit more about her? Sure. Uh, she, yeah, you're absolutely right. And she, um, she one of these ambassadors is not like the others. That is certainly true. She was the first woman to work her way up through the career foreign service. She joined in the late 1920s by passing the foreign service exam. I actually quote at length from the, the memo of the personnel board meeting where they were talking about her and she was led in by a three to two vote, which easily could have been a two to three vote. There were a couple of men on the committee who were like, we're, we don't want any women in the foreign service. And the people who voted for her, they're like, okay, but she just did better than most of the men on the test. She's, she's polished. She's, she's, she's well put together. She's professional. She, why aren't we letting her in? And so she barely got in. 
And at that time, there were other women who got in, but they tended not to last. They either got married or they were denied promotions or they were given lousy reviews, whether they deserve them or not. And their careers would stall. And even hers almost stalled at one point. But she never got married. She stuck it out. It took her a quarter of a century. But she was so good at her job, she slowly rose to the top. Once again, she changed the minds of some of the men who were not open to having women in the service. And she, like Luce, is appointed by Eisenhower as ambassador to Switzerland in 1953, which is interesting that at the time, women in Switzerland, the host country, could not vote. Believe it or not, Swiss women don't get the right to vote until 1971, which makes them one of the last countries in Europe. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. It's partly, not that you care, but it's partly because Switzerland is a confederation and to change the constitution on voting, you have to get all 22 of the cantons to agree. So it's just, a you know, most Swiss thought women should have the right to vote before 1971. It just took a while. But, you know, there was a lot of speculation at the time. It's like, what is Eisenhower saying with this? Like, why would you send a woman to a country where women can't vote, right? It's a real real good question there was no there he was not trying to send a signal um uh, willis had been recommended by some of the professional career diplomats who were advising the secretary of state on appointments they said yeah sure she's a woman but she's amazing she's super good at her job wanted to make her ambassador to switzerland so she had three appointments and i take back what i said earlier she did actually serve under two presidents um it would help if i knew my own book better uh she served two, two posts under Eisenhower, Switzerland, then Norway. And then she served in Ceylon, which today is Sri Lanka. It was Ceylon at the time under Kennedy. So she had three different ambassadorships. Um, and it, it was a slog. There, there were people looking to trip her up. Uh, I point out that early in her career, she became a stickler for the rules, not just protocol, but for diplomatic rules in general. And... You know, if, if one of us worked in her office for her, we would say she was a tyrant, that she was a taskmaster, or we use some less pleasant sexist terms, especially if I, especially if, if I, if I were a guy working for her. Um, right? She's a stickler, right? She's a, she, she's a micromanager, and that was true. And that's partly comes from a career, and this is, this is partly this sort of inference, but it comes from a career where men are looking to trip you up, and so one of the ways you, you fight back is you master the rule book and you, you learn the rule book better than anybody else. And so no one can ever say, oh, she didn't do X, Y, Z. She always did X, Y, Z. She, she crossed uh, every T and dotted every I. And so when by the time she's running her own embassy, it becomes in some ways hard to be one of her subordinates because she's such a stickler. There was one diplomat who said in an interview, that she basically saw every piece of paper that left the embassy. Well, I don't care what organization you're working in. If you're the head of the organization, you should not be looking over every single piece of paper that leaves the organization. That's micromanagement. You've got a whole bunch of underlings who are supposed to be doing that. You're supposed to, right? Management 101, uh, hire good people and let them do their jobs. That's what you're supposed to do. You're supposed to delegate. And she found that very, very hard. And there was actually one case where her deputy chief of mission called her on it. She was not relying on him for this one issue that he had years and years of expertise on. And he's like, basically, what's up with this? Why aren't you relying on me? And she actually apologized, um, which I suspect a man, if those role reversals, if those gender roles had been reversed, I don't think it would have gone down like that. But she, to her credit, she said, you know what, you're right. Um, I'm going to involve you more in this because you've got all this expertise that I don't have and I'm going I'm to delegate. So she was, you know, she was not completely inflexible. But like I said, when you spend 25 years wedded to a particular formula for success, it's really, really hard to push it aside. But but she did a very she did a great job. If you look at we there's a what is it the Association for Diplomatic Studies and Training I think it's called they have this huge series of oral history interviews they do those are they're all online they're searchable. Um, a lot of people who worked for her were interviewed, and they're blown away by her talent. A lot of them are like, well, she's the best, you know, and these are people who spent, the career diplomats spent 25, 30 years in the business, and they're like, she's the best person I ever worked for. It's like, we need more ambassadors like her. Um, or the, what was it, the prime minister of Norway 
when another woman who's not in the book was appointed in 1964, apparently there were some Norwegians in the government. They're like, uh, no, we got, they're sending us another woman so soon. And Norwegian prime minister is like, look, they sent us a woman before and she was better than all the men. Once again, that's, that's how minds get changed, right? That's how you, that's how you undermine decades, centuries of patriarchy and sexism is that when you're given a shot, you make the most of it. And then the more enlightened men are like, you know what? Maybe we had this all wrong. Maybe, maybe I need to question my sexism, even if it's just happening subliminally, right? They're not going to, they're not going to sort of publicly or, you know, just look in the mirror. Goodness, I'm a patriarchal pig. You know, that that's unlikely to happen, but at the margins, this is how the patriarchy gets undermined. And that let and I argue that even though the book stops in 1964, that, that that sort of sets the stage for what happens later. And the real change doesn't come till much later. Uh, the book stops in 1964, but, you know, you don't have a, a, a critical mass of female ambassadors really until the 1990s. Um, you, you, could, you, you, you could argue, if I can criticize my own book, you could argue that I should have gone deeper or sort of for further toward the present in talking about some of the female ambassadors. Uh, it would have made a, a much longer book that would, would have taken much longer to write. But uh, the real change happens in the 90s, and it becomes routine, right? And we, and we start to see female secretaries of state. And, you know, we don't have equality, as I argue in my uh, conclusion, not anything close to equality, but it's night and day. I mean, the women in the 40s and 50s and 60s, they were tokens. They stood out. You know, you could have a huge diplomatic cocktail party and apart from the women serving cocktails, the only woman there would be the only woman there would be like the one female ambassador. Um, now it's 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 quite commonplace, and lots of men work for women. It's changed a lot, even in other countries too. Yes. So, Phil, what do you hope readers will take away from reading the fascinating stories of the Big Six? Wow. That, that's one of those questions I've never actually thought about, even though maybe I should have. Um, I, I, I just, how can I put this? I think it, it rounds out our picture of how women make progress, and in particular in this one field of foreign relations, which, as I say, has been so hostile and so forbidding to women, even compared to other fields. Um, these women, they... You know, occasionally they write an autobiography, but these are women who tend not to get a lot of attention. Um, when, when I talk uh, about these women or people find out about the book, they're like, well, I never heard of these women. And I think they're absolutely right. Uh, you've never heard of them. They're not household names. Some of them are like Hillary Booth Luce, pretty famous. You know, a lot of people would have heard of her, not because she was an ambassador necessarily, mainly because more, more so because she was a playwright. But to me, that you cannot understand the day-to-day -day business of diplomacy without understanding what people go through sort of on the ground, right? It's not just all happening in Washington. It's not just about the president, the secretary of state, the national security advisor. It's about people who run embassies. And at a time when it was extremely difficult for women to get these positions, there were a few who did. And they not only did a good job, at the worst of them was probably Pearl Mesta, and I remember that she, even she did a pretty good job. So they not only did they perform well, but they, almost all of them, to some extent or another, engaged in what, like I said, what Anderson um, referred to as people's diplomacy. In other words, at a time when not only were there no women, but the men who practiced diplomacy tended to stay in the embassy, tended to hang out in the elite upper crust of local society, they didn't go out traveling. The idea that you represent the United States, not just to a government, but to a, a, to a, to a people, right, to an entire population, this is something the women did on their own, and that made them ahead of their time. That is now routine, no matter who you are. It's part of the ambassador's toolbox. It's part of their job description. You represent the United States to an entire people. You glad hand. You schmooze, you go to events, you make public speeches, you meet with not just governments, but social groups. I'll bet ambassadors have their own Twitter, Twitter accounts. Uh, you know, you have, to, you have to reach out. And these women sort of anticipated that more modern age of public diplomacy. 
And for those reasons, I think they, they deserve to be known about and they, they deserve some recognition. Yeah, and they set the stage for what was to come because the very next year, the first African-American woman was appointed ambassador, um, Patricia uh, Roberts-Harris. Harris. Yep, so they definitely absolutely. set the stage. Right. Yeah, and I, I talk, uh, you know, I, my conclusion brings us up to the present more or less, and it's just sort of a quick overview. But yeah, I talk about, I don't think I mentioned Patricia, Patricia Harris. She's someone who, but that, by the way, she would have been like uh, the next chapter if I were doing this book a little, a little further in time. She's very, very important. Uh, but yeah, I, I do talk about how, how some of the other barriers fall, how women get higher positions in the State Department, not just ambassadorships, right, sort of on their way, right, 1981, for example, Jean Kirkpatrick becomes our first female ambassador to the UN, uh, you know, so the barriers fall in the 70s and 80s and 90s, you know, I actually wrote an article about this on HNN, we've now, we are now on our fourth woman at the UN in a row, and I, I actually argue that might even be something of a bad thing. Because in other words, it might suggest not that women are important, but the UN is unimportant, if that makes any sense. In other words, this is a place where we can safely send women because the UN doesn't count. Now, that's a pretty controversial claim. Um, you could easily dispute that. But I think it's odd that since 2009, we've only had women representing us in New York. Right, kind of interesting. So, you know, it's it's classic two steps forward, one steps back. There's still all sorts of barriers, all sorts of, all sorts of discrimination female diplomats, maybe not ambassadors, but certainly female diplomats, they have to put up, I mean, they've had their Me Too moment as well. They have to put up with harassment and assault uh, in the Foreign Service. That's an issue. Um, so all sorts of discrimination. The women still tend to be sent. I mean, there's one country we've sent the most women to over our entire diplomatic history. We've sent seven women to the same place, and that's Luxembourg. Yes. Whereas we've never sent a woman to Moscow. We've never sent a woman to Madrid. Uh, is that deliberate? I don't know, right? Once the numbers start to pile up and you start to send a lot of women to the Solomon Islands and to Luxembourg and Andorra and places like that, and yet they tend not to get the jobs in, in Paris and London, you got to start asking the question, right? Like, is the playing field really level? With the really prestige pros, I might add, it's partly a money issue. To, to be ambassador to London, you have to be a millionaire, basically, because you have to spend a ton of money out of pocket for entertaining, because London's a very expensive city. And what, But once again, it's still about sexism. Why don't we have more women billionaires and millionaires, right? <laughs> That's also about sexism. But what that means is that the pool you draw from for those positions is, is it has to, be, has to be rich people. And I might add, by the way, because this is an issue right this summer in 2020, our current ambassador to London, Woody Johnson, uh, uh, the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation fame. Uh, he has been criticized recently because he has held, as my understanding, he has held official diplomatic events at exclusive all-male clubs in London. In other words, female diplomats cannot attend that function because it's being held in an all-male club. I thought that that's one aspect we had put behind us, right? Because men's clubs, and who talks about men's clubs? Men's clubs aren't a thing anymore. Just typically they aren't, at least not, not in the diplomatic world. And here we are, like, goodness, wait, I'm, I'm confused. Is, is this 2020 or is this 1920? Sometimes I forget. Me too. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah, sometimes I forget. Um, so, I mean, that's an extraordinary case, but we are, uh, if anyone says, oh, look, we got dozens of women as ambassadors and we got a female secretary of state three times running, we're good. No, we're not even close to being good that uh, you, can make a, you can make a good case that glass is half empty, unfortunately. Well, Phil, we've taken up a lot of your time, but before we let you go, would you mind sharing what you're working on next? I'd be happy to. I have uh, alluded to it earlier. I actually have a book contract, which is nice. I'm writing a book uh, that's just on Claire Booth Luce. Um, partly because uh, the only, there's a recent two-volume enormous sort of life and times official biography of her by Sylvia Jukes Morris. Uh, it's a total of like 1200 pages. If you wanted to assign something for a university class on Claire with Luce, you'd have to assign articles because you're never going to assign this, you know, these two phone books, you know, and they're really, they're really important resource. So I thought we needed sort of a slimmer sort of concise political biography of Claire with Luce 
considering how amazing her career was. And so that's my next project. And, and it's honestly, it's, it's efficient for me. I've, I've done a, most of the research already that I did for the, for the Breaking Protocol book. So it's, it's not a huge ask in terms of me doing additional research. But that's my next project. So I'm going to spin the chapter on her into a broader political biography of her entire career. Well, best of luck with that project. And it was really great to have you on. Yes, thank you for being this on the was show a blast. today. <clears throat> it's my pleasure. This was a blast. I really do appreciate the opportunity. Breaking Protocol, America's First Female Ambassadors, 1933 to 1964, by Philip Nash, is available now from University Press of Kentucky. Thank you for listening to New Books in National Security, a podcast channel on the New Books Network.